HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This is Chris Young, co-author of Modernist Cuisine. I'd like to invite you to check out ChefSteps.com. It's a free website we've created as a place to learn new cooking techniques and collaborate with curious cooks from around the world. Sign up now at ChefSteps.com. You're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org, a nonprofit member-supported radio station. We're millions strong, with folks tuning in from over 200 countries. We are education. We are entertainment. We are the future of food. May is our membership drive. Become a member and support us while receiving e-newsletters, advanced invites, special discounts, and a membership card. We need your support. Visit our website and click the donate button to become a member today. Thank you for believing in us, and enjoy the show. Welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live from Alberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn, on the Heritage Radio Network, every Tuesday from roughly 12 to roughly 12.45 or 1. Joined uh, in the studio, uh, again, uh, normal, we're normal style today, with Nastasha the Hammer Lopez. How you doing, Stas? Okay. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah? Jack decided not to join us today. I don't know what that's all about. But we have Joe. Hey, Joe, how you doing? I'm doing great. How are you guys? I'm doing right. I was listening to the uh, <clears throat> little blurb we have at the uh, beginning there. And, you know, they, they have a word for something that's both entertainment and information. It's edutainment. Isn't that right? Yeah. Edutainment. Yeah, that sounds right. So are we edutain... edutain what, how would you say that? Edutainable? Edutainment? Anyway, whatever. <clears throat> anyway, call in your questions to 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Hope to be joined uh, soon on the telephone with uh, the, uh, one of the sponsors from today's show, Chris Young from uh, Chef Steps and Modernist Cuisine. And in fact, <clears throat> he's a um, bit of a coffee nut. So I have some coffee questions that I put off uh, from last time and some also, I think, ones from this time. So I'm going to hold off on those until Chris calls in so I can get him to weigh in on it as well. By the way, Stas, how did uh, Mark's uh, barbecue, his Italian barbecue go? Really well. Yeah? Lots of people. It raised a lot of money, I think. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Uh, like, uh, well, how, was, how was the food? Pretty okay. <laughs> oh, Stas with her, with her uh, 
Wait, wait. Rave Ray, Ray reviews of everything. Mm. Okay. <clears throat> hey, uh, we have a caller. Ooh. Ooh. Well, All right, it's... caller. Caller, you're on the air. Hey. Hey, Dave, this is Chris from Seattle. How are you? Hey, doing all right, doing all right. So, uh, Joe, this is Chris Young, our sponsor from today. Oh, yes. Do we have the opportunity to take other calls in as well or, or no? We have one line open still. So, uh... <laughs> All right, so for those of you that want to pester Chris with any of your modernist and or non-modernist and or when he was working at Fat Duck and or gliding because he's a glider pilot, <laughs> if you have any, uh, I didn't realize you knew that. Oh yeah, oh yeah. So if you have any questions relating to any of those things, uh, call on in. How you doing, Chris? I'm doing well, man. How are you? Yeah. It's been a while. Yeah, I know. When are you, when are you in New York next? Uh, I don't know. When you uh, when are you going to invite me out for drinks? Oh, you are always welcome at the bar for drinks, Chris. <laughs> but uh, uh, I, uh, well, I'm just about recovered from my last trip to New York. So uh, when I when I lose any sort of judgment, I'll be back out. Oh, but, exactly, uh, exactly. Well, so it, now, are you still spending all of your time in Seattle? Or now, where is Chef, Spe- Chef, uh, Chef Steps? It's based in several locations, or how's it working? No, we are in. We're a. We have a four thousand square foot space in Seattle's Pike Place Market, overlooking the water, and so we've. Built out our own experimental kitchen and, and tooled it up. We have our software developers and, and entire production team here. We do have a bit of a hardware engineering lab just south of Seattle in Georgetown and uh, a couple employees uh, in Chicago and L.A. But other than that, we're here. Nice. Well, I have to come on and visit you guys sometime. Yes, you absolutely should. I, I was thinking we maybe need like a, an East Coast West Coast uh, uh, cocktail challenge. We, we've we've got we've got our own uh, fairly talented bar bar staff here as well. Oh yeah. <clears throat> well, I'm down yeah. for a challenge. What would the challenge be? Uh, I, I I know you. What, it, it's your show. Uh, what what do you think it should be? Man, I don't know. I mean, you know that my particular my particular bent is towards things that. Uh, Look somewhat normal, uh, huh? Like Stas, what do you think a good challenge would be? I'm actually I need a good challenge. I was just saying the other day, like I need a new cocktail problem to solve, not just a new ingredient or taste, but a whole new problem to solve. Can you think of any, Chris? Or should we leave this open to our readers? Like what? What? Or listeners? Uh, rather? I, I, I'd actually like to hear from your from your viewers. I've always found uh, I certainly find in our forum that the best, the biggest challenges tend to, to come from unexpected places. Yeah. yeah although, I mean, although being barbecue season, uh, you know, I'm certainly have you done much with uh, with smoke and cocktails in drinks? No, I tell you why. <clears throat> There's been a, a bunch of people who have done a lot of work with it already, and so you know, I, I I tend to do the hardest work in places where I think there's a lot a lot lot more work to do. But there is a lot more. You know, the a lot of problems I think I have with people when they've smoked the cocktails is they t- they tend to use uh, they tend to use uh, kind of those uh, those uh, small format uh, smoke generators, <clears throat> and yeah. uh, when they when when you oversmoke a drink with that, it tends to take on more of kind of the over phenolicy burnt uh, flavors from it, and it can be hard for those. It can be hard for people to dose. I mean, I think the best results I've seen are actually from <clears throat> more of the smoky flavor off of charred chips and whatnot. I've, se- I've seen good results off of that, and had good results off that. I mean, obviously, smoke and alcohol go together. I mean, have you done any good experiments with it or not? Well, yeah, we just uh, we just did a cocktail. Uh, we've done a couple things. We did a we did one where we take charred oak chips and we pressure infuse it with an ISI siphon uh, um, uh, to basically get uh, a rapid aging of the, of the bourbon and and that sort of smoky flavor. And that's that's fantastic. And we have another cocktail where we uh, 
we use charred cinnamon sticks at some uh, so a cocktail we call Churchill's Breakfast. Yeah, and how's that one come out? No, that, that one's delicious. Um, I will happily drink that just about any day. I've had good luck with the ISI mm-hmm. and uh, and oak doing like a semi-char, semi-oak at the same time. But my favorite way to add wood is, of course, to take an aged spirit that I like, rotovap it so that I have the uh, <clears throat> I have the oak left over and then add it back to my other unaged stuff. I mean, that's, stuff, that's fantastic. It's a little bit pricey and out, out of the range of most people working, but... <clears throat> hey, Chris and Dave, we have a, a caller for both of you. Oh, yeah? Yeah. All right, caller, you're on the air. What's up? Hey, uh, this is Yvonne calling from Silver Spring, Maryland. How you doing? Um, good, good. So I had, a qu- I had a couple of questions uh, for you and for Chris. Uh, first, I'd like to say, uh, you know, Jeff Steps really impressive as, as an amazing, amazing resource. I have Myra Susie and Myra Susie at home, but it's always fantastic to be able to see the videos. Just the, the breakdown that everything is done on there. Really, really great work. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. Um, so my uh, friend and I are throwing kind of like an ice cream party uh, tomorrow, and we didn't have time to do a lot of side-by-side tests with one of the recipes that we were doing, but uh, one of the things we were doing was a recipe from the... Uh, Humphrey Locum restaurant in, uh, I think, San Francisco. It's like an ice cream book. And it's um, strawberry and candied jalapeno. So the candied jalapeno we make by, you know, just uh, taking out the seeds and the ribs and just uh, cooking it with simple syrup. So we were kind of expecting that it would, there would still be some heat left over in the jalapeno, but there really wasn't anything that we could discern, both in the jalapeno itself and then in the syrup you know, that had kind of like the infusion afterwards. So we were wondering if that was, because the, the recipe was kind of imprecise, it was just like one jalapeno. So it didn't say how big, how much, um, and, you know, they can vary in terms of their heat. But is, do, you, do you know if, mm-hmm. if there's some issue that the, the capsaicin, it gets kind of neutralized when you go through that process? Uh, no. Would it make a difference if we use oh. more... I, I, I'd like to. I, I want to get a little clarification here. Is the, is the jalapeno going in a dairy base, and is that when you lose the heat, or is it after you poach it in the sugar syrup that the heat seems to be diminished? Uh, it seemed to be after the syrup. It went in the syrup. Yeah. I mean, there was there was nothing. There was no, no trace of anything in the syrup either, besides for the kind of the the um, floral notes of the jalapeno itself. Did you eat the jalapeno? Did you eat a portion of the jalapeno beforehand to verify that it was indeed um, spicy? No, no, we didn't. But that, you know, that's that's a, that's a fair point because with milk kind of takes away the uh, the heat, right? Well, the, the, the capsaicin is fairly soluble in in fat. So when you when you put, you know, when you put the the the, the, the chilies in an, an ice cream base, absolutely it's going to diminish the fat. I've made I've made habanero ice cream that would be un- inedible if it if it wasn't dissolved in, in that much fat. But if you're losing the heat during in the syrup. There's really only two things that come to my mind, and Dave, jump in here if you see it differently. But one, my best bet would be, my, my, my first guess would be the jalapeno you had just wasn't very hot to begin with. Yeah. Um, and the second thing is, I don't know how much syrup you were using, but you're going to dilute some of the capsaicin down in that syrup. And, and if you take a fairly small amount of capsaicin to begin with and dilute it down in a large amount of syrup, um, it's not, your result's not going to be very hot. So if you want a little bit more heat, I might look, uh, you know, I might look to using something other than a jalapeno. Yeah, but that said, if you take a jalapeno and slice it thin, 
even in a relatively like if it's a if it's a you know <clears throat> a good you know a good one with some strength and you slice it relatively thinly and do a boil out with it in the sugar syrup you should be able to pick up a good bit the, I mean the good thing about you know sugar syrup is <clears throat> you can continue to heat it for a while so you know what I typically do with uh, heat I tend not to use uh, green when I add heat to things most of the time uh, in drinks and, and in uh, ice creams and things like this I'm, I want to add a, more of a red flavored heat so I tend to use red things uh, so but you, you just keep tasting it and what'll happen is is I is it'll it'll be the right amount of spice and then eventually it'll over it'll over extract and get too spicy so I just keep tasting 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 and then throw it through a coarse chinois to strain it out as soon as it's at the place where I like it um, and that, that tends to be what I what I do it's almost impossible to measure uh, peppers because they're so variable with regard to their heat levels even from pepper to pepper unless you're dealing with something preposterously hot like a habanero where you know that it's going to hit you with a wild fat but even then you can be mistaken you can get an ahi dulce which looks for all the world like a habanero and smells like it but doesn't taste like it very much and isn't hot hardly at all um you know so like peppers can be extremely extremely variable uh and so you know i would always get a couple of extra chop chop them throw them in while while you do the heat and be aware that what chris says is right when you then mix it down with your with your milk and cream base it's going to reduce the heat even further so you might want to just have some spicy crap sitting around that you can dose back in the spice with but you have to be careful because usually then when you're dosing something back you're dosing if you're dosing a dry spice let's say those things get radically hotter when you infuse them so the red pepper flakes you get at a pizza parlor you can eat them on their own without too much trouble you infuse them for a long time in a liquid and then they can start blowing your top off, right, Chris? I mean, you're, you're... yeah, no. The, the basic issue is when they're dry, you tend to swallow them before they have time to to rehydrate and, and start diffusing out the capsaicin. But if you rehydrate them first, so that the capsaicin can can easily hit the soft tissue in your mouth, you're gonna you're gonna be a very unhappy person. Yeah, I mean that's the classic mistake people do when they're making sauces: is they'll throw in a bunch of dry chili flakes, and they're like, oh, it's not hot enough, and then they'll throw in some more dry, dry chili flakes. Well, it's still not hot yeah. enough, and they'll throw some more, right. and, and then 15 minutes later, they're done, you know? Yeah, you got you to gotta, you gotta wait, and you got to give it time. Yeah, That's not okay. as much of a problem I with had, fresh, but... Oh, thank you. I had, uh, I had a drink question also, uh, okay. maybe, you know, up to your, up your challenge. I was wondering if uh, we wanted to kind of pair some of these things with alcohol drinks, um, and then I was thinking, did you, have you ever tried to do, like, an alcohol version of an ice cream float? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Oh, and... Uh, so, so you made kind of like an alcoholic, um, like a, a fizzy, you know, frothy drink, and then you know just dumped ice cream in there. Yep, delicious. Any, anything in particular? Any any good combinations that you'd recommend? I mean, there's the obvious ones: root beer. There's some a couple of good root beer uh, liqueurs out there. You can make your own root beer flavor, and you can do a classic root beer float. That's probably the first one I ever did. Uh, you can I mean I mean I would imagine that uh, you know a recarbonated rum and coke would make a good float if you want traditional oh. flavors. Uh, I've done, um, you know, if you like vinegar cocktails, uh, fi- like a really nice fresh fig ice cream with uh, with like a slightly vinegared carbonated soda cocktail is nice and works as a non-dessert kind of a thing. Um, okay. But there's, I mean, Chris, have you ever done uh, what, what what flavors have you tried with that? Uh, I haven't done a I haven't done a, a ice cream an alcoholic ice cream float, but I'm I'm immediately thinking of how to how to do something like a boozy creamsicle. Oh yeah, well we have a we have a drink now. I mean like like a carbonated 
Uh, well, Jim, I don't know how Jim would go with ice cream. You might have to switch to a different spirit. But <clears throat> orange, we have a drink on the in the bar menu now that's uh, clarified orange orange juice uh, where we add a citric uh, and malic blend to it to give it the acidic characteristics of lime juice. And we use, mm-hmm. that, we use that in a daiquiri variant where we milk wash the daiquiri to give it a nice heavy – so it tastes like an orange Julius. We call it Dr. J. But mm-hmm. that orange base oh, – we don't clarify for the daiquiri because we want it to be foamy. But it clarified – you can you. I've made a, a kind of gin, like a gin. So I would make like a celery, a celery ice cream or sorbet, and then do like a clarified orange with malic and citric, uh, and like liquor of your choice, carbonated, carbonated, and uh, poured over could be quite nice. You, you know what I would try? I've been playing. We've, we've been playing with this a bit lately. Is is uh, old school phosphates and uh, uh, using phosphoric acid as as our seasoning with various citrus citrus juices and then carbonating them. And, and I, I've kind of got a hankering to, to sort of make an alcoholic mandarin mandarin soda that's that's getting it that acid, extra acidity not only from the citric but but uh, phosphoric. Have you ever worked with phosphoric acid, Dave? Uh, yeah, but the problem is, is that Nastasha hates it. And so, like, whenever I want to go towards... Uh, oh, well, in that case, we're, we're done. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, but the, well, I mean, the issue is is that, yeah, well, Chris, you know this, like, you, 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 if someone asks you to work on something, you work on something, but then if the people around you are constantly saying how they hate things, it's like, makes it kind of a pain in the butt to work with. The same way that, like, we don't do a lot with cherries because I'm allergic to it, you know? So it's... That's a, that's a horrible thing to be allergic to. I know, I know it is. Cause cher- cherries are God's best fruit, I think. Uh, they're, they're certainly my favorite. And have you not had therapy for that? I, I, I think – you know what it is? It's uh, – it, what happened was is that you know, I've, uh, I'm being punished. I'm being punished for all of those years of making fun of people with allergies. And so they're like, oh, world's greatest fruit? Well, now you're allergic to it. Enjoy. I think that's what happened pretty much. <laughs> So this is karma. Yeah, yeah, bad, 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 uh, bad karma. When you are carbonating things, be aware when you're carbonating um, <clears throat> is that you can probably go a little bit higher alcohol and a little bit higher sugar than you would for a drink drink. But um, the more alcohol you have, the harder it's going to be to carbonate prob- uh, properly. When we're making carbonated drinks uh, at the bar for consumption – uh, you know, straight drinking consumption. We use uh, ratios of between 1.75 uh, to up to two ounces. That's 60 mils of uh, of high proof spirit in a total uh, cocktail base of five ounces. Just for for your you know general edification. Anything stiffer than that, and it's going to be more difficult to. Um, it's going to be more difficult to carbonate properly, and also when something stiffer than that is balanced out with acids and sugars, it's going to tend to taste syrupy, and the first couple of bites might be good, but they, I mean, drinks might be good, but as it goes down, it's going to be more cloying. So just, just so you know, now if you're working on a float, you could probably go a little, a little harder than that, but also realize that an alcoholic-based soda will foam even more than a regular soda when poured on an ice cream base. Uh, just Really? Yeah. Well, because – Alcohol tends to foam anyway. Like when you're carbonating cocktails, it foams so much, you know. So my – like I, there's already a foaming issue with it. And then obviously floats are, are a foaming issue. So it's just, yeah. you know, it can become a big foam. It's delicious though, but it can be a big kind of a, a foamy mess. All right, Chris, while you're on the air here, let's – I have yeah. some coffee questions in. Uh, so first of all, uh, 
we had a question last week. Someone was asking about uh, frothing frothing milk without getting an expensive frother. And I'm actually, you know, in uh, modernist cuisine, you guys have a recipe where you stabilize uh, foam with uh, with whey protein isolate and uh, sucrose ester sucrose esters. Uh, will that actually make latte art foam with an aero latte? Is it dense enough? Does the sucrose ester make it uh, fine enough? Uh, the, the whey protein helps you probably more than the sucrose esters. So you, you could probably leave the sucrose esters out of that and, and, and still make it work. It's possible to make a, a, a latte foam that you can pour latte art with using an aero latte. There's a fair amount of technique. What I've found is you generally sort of uh, you need to be warming it as you go, and you want to be working the, the, the aero latte one really sort of more at the bottom. You're going to try to drag a little bit of air in, but then mostly what you're trying to do is just have the aero latte sort of buried deeper and constantly sort of breaking up the, the, the bubble so that you're getting a smaller and smaller microphone. So I tend to be moving the aero latte around the bottom of the pot, of the pot slowly bringing it towards the surface so that I've sort of brought the aero latte to the surface at about the same time that the, the milk is the right temperature. The real thing that most people make a mistake with, in my experience, if you want to get a, a really wet foam that's velvety and silky and you can't really see any individual bubbles and it's going to you know, sort of have that viscous pour to it, is don't overheat the milk. The milk really shouldn't be much hotter than about 45, 50 Celsius at the most if you really want to have a, have some milk that's really easy to pour, uh, pour latte air with. If you start getting the milk up to like 60 Celsius, 140 Fahrenheit, it's going to be really dry, and when you go to pour it, all the foam is going to slide back to the pitcher and hot milk's just going to come out beneath it. Um, and, and so I found that that's really almost more important than anything else you add to the milk so you can't when get it to the, use an aero latte. You can't get it to the temperatures that you would get if you were actually pulling it from a steam wand? When I pull from a steam wand, I very rarely go much hotter than that myself. But I don't tend to drink huge milky beverages. Mm. So, like, if I drink a traditional cappuccino or a, uh, or a five-ounce latte, um, I generally won't heat my milk much hotter than about 45 Celsius, and that gives me just this really nice milk texture. Almost every coffee shop I go into, I... I I tend to have the opinion that they, they oversteam the milk so that it's piping hot when you're carrying around this sort of bladder-busting size coffee. Right. Um, but for me, that's not a very pleasant drinking experience. Well, like my wife, for instance, she likes the taste of the foam done uh, kind of lower temp, but she prefers the coffee to be hotter. There's no really no way around. I mean, like, like can you do like a quick nuke and like not you – know, you're just automatically ruined as soon as it's heated up? Well, the, the thing to do there is your, 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 your espresso is going to come out plenty hot, you yeah. know, nearly boiling, right? No, it's the just, milk. Just yeah, blow it's that. The, yeah, it's the Have milk. Have a hot cup. Um, and, and then don't, if, if, you, if you're going to drown it in, in a huge amount of milk, yeah, you're, you're hosed. Yeah. Um, you can probably get the, with a steam wand, you could get the 50, 55 comfortably and still get a wet foam. Yeah. Um, but my experience is as you go much hotter than that, the foam starts to get really unstable. It starts to get dry, and it just isn't as pleasant to drink. Now, I mean, I always pull, uh, I always pull like a hefty amount of uh, hot water out of the hot water tap on my espresso machine before into my cup to preheat it. But is that not standard well, practice? Well, so I suppose standard practice is, is have the cups on the top of the espresso machine so that they're they're nice and hot. They they, they you know they design the machine so that the boiler heats uh, heating the, the top surface. But um, if you want it really hot, yeah, just you know dose some of the boiling water out of the boiler into it. But more than anything else, I just like it when it's served in a, in, a, in a warm cup. There's something really nice about how that feels when you're when you're drinking it. Well, that's also you know cups in general, which is why you know. 
paper cups are the devil. <clears throat> yeah, but uh, paper cups have the advantage that they go in your car real nice, and and, and uh, you know that, that I, I know that that's you know more of a West Coast thing to drive around through your, your drive through Starbucks and and get your your your, your what is it? I think it's thirty some on ounce Starbucks uh, uh, latte now. Wow! So you know that's with one double in it. That only has one double of coffee in it. Oh, I, I have no idea. I've never ordered that beast of a drink. It's like the, the Trento or something. It's some. It's like the big gulp of the latte world, and I think it's like two shots. Yeah, so but it, I'm sure somebody can call in and correct us because I've never had it. Yeah, so that you never that doesn't happen in New York because here what you would have to do is walk past five Starbucks to get to your car, then drive to the Starbucks, double park, go into the Starbucks, get the thing, come back out, put it in your car, and then you could drink it for the next hour and a half while you look for your parking space again. Yeah. You're just reminding me of why I'm glad I don't live in New York. <laughs> yeah, but on the other hand, we walk everywhere. Okay, anyway, so back back, back on the coffee. Uh, oh, by the okay. way, so Scott from Guelph wrote in uh, commenting on that question from last week, and uh, Scott says, uh, I wanted to write in, firstly, on making decent milk foam without a steam wand on a high-end espresso machine. I found a fairly good and cheap technique. You can buy a small French press-style coffee maker, some specifically designed for milk. You add the cold milk to the bottom of the press so it comes up over the mesh, mesh screen, and you rapidly pump the screen up and down in the milk and make it fairly dense and stable foam. You can then heat the milk inside the glass container in the nuke. Uh, the foam doesn't overheat and pop since the air mixture doesn't absorb microwaves as well as the still liquid milk at the bottom. With my setup, it takes about 45 seconds to get to the proper temperature for a cappuccino, and the foam seems to work best if you use very cold skimmed milk, although you can get a richer but less impressive foam with higher fat milks. I do not like skimmed milk foams. What do you think about that technique, uh, Chris? I think the, uh, the the biggest challenge I, I would be concerned about is, is as you sort of nuke it, essentially you're going to have the dry foam rise to the top and it's going to drain out. So I suspect with a lot of care and attention you can sort of swirl it and keep the foam wet and together. But to, to me, I'm, I'm, I, I, I've seen the technique. I've never been able to get it to work where I can get a nice, evenly wet, dense foam from top to bottom of the pitcher that I can just free pour to get a, a, a nice rosette. Yeah. But, you know, it totally works. You don't even, if you just want an okay milk foam and you don't want to spend a lot of money, you can use any French press to do that. Uh, skim milk does work best, but it tastes bad. unpleasant in my in my, my opinion. I, I'd use 2%. It's a, skim milk's a bad product. Let me just say this right now. Skim milk should not exist. Why? It's horrible. It's just a nightmare. I mean, like, like if you want to, like, dehydrate it and get the milk powder for use in something else, maybe. But why would you ever want – I mean, it's horrible. You know, my 90 uh, – how old is he now? 94 almost year old grandpa is, is – only drinks full-fat milk. Like, this, like, you're not saving that much. It's just wretched. It's just a wretched, thin, gray, awful thing. Like I gotta say, I'm sure it has some culinary applications, but as an actual product to consume, it's wretched. Do you disagree with me? I don't drink skim milk. Yeah, no, it's horrible. Uh, so uh, now uh, Scott writes in also a uh, separate issue we had, Chris, last week was uh, someone wanted to uh, serve a non-alcoholic uh, drinks to their wife uh, uh, who is pregnant. And, uh, and so you know, ideas of drinks that you could sip for a while uh, you know, and sort of instead of having an alcoholic drink. Scott writes in, 
there are de-alcoholized wines that aren't appalling, but I, what I wanted to share was making your own drink out of the spice sumac. sumac. Uh, this is an old idea and is usually referred to as sumac lemonade. You basically steep the sumac in hot or cold water, add sugar to taste. Sumac is high in malic acid uh, and so has a wine-like bite to it. The flavor is somewhat woodsy and floral and makes a very refreshing summertime drink. Sumac grows wild around here. He's from Guelph, Canada. I wonder whether he's involved with the university. They have a great dairy department there. Um, yeah, they do. Yeah. Uh, the flavor is somewhat woodsy and floral and makes a very refreshing summertime drink. Sumac grows wild around here, and many people harvest it themselves. Sumac trees grow on the sides of the road, and they spread out as clones of the parent. The spice comes from the red cone-shaped spears that adorn the tree, and you are supposed to harvest them when the weather is dry or the malic acid gets washed off during the rain. I did not know that. I did not. I did not know that. I've been tempted to ferment some sumac lemonade, but of course that won't help you if you are up the spout, which I learned last week means pregnant as well as broken or pawned. Uh, keep up the awesome show, Scott. Uh, I, actually, I love sumac. We, in fact, one of the flavors of uh, I shouldn't say this. Um, we're, we we have we do a lot of sumac work, which is not for the public yet. I happen to love sumac a lot. But uh, you work with it a lot, Chris. Uh, I haven't used sumac in a while. I, I, I enjoy it, but I. Uh... You know, I think the last time I was using it was when I was working in sort of this classic French restaurant, and we were using it with lamb, and, and I think I made that dish a, a few hundred times too many uh, to, to want to keep working with sumac. Yeah, what su- do you, I mean, it's got a really distinctive flavor that, that, that's, that's interesting. I guess uh, I've just never really had a reason to play with it. Yeah, it's not only malic. I think there's probably some oxalic in there as well. It's got that kind of like sorely kind of hit to it too. Um, mm mm-hmm. But uh, but I don't know that. That's just coming off the top of my head. But you know, it makes fa- as you know, as Scott points out, it makes fantastic. Uh, it makes fantastic still, but it makes really fantastic sparkling drinks. Really good. So so something I've I've, I've made in the past that I think is a great non-alcoholic alternative is, is I'm, I'm a huge fan of elderflower uh, blossoms, and uh, maybe that's from my time in England because it's a pretty popular drink over there. But uh, if you can get uh, sort of elderflower cordial, uh, the the syrup or you can make your own, uh, a blend of that of lemon juice, and then I'll make a, a simple syrup infused with uh, Douglas fir, and a blend of, of the lemon juice, the elderflower cordial, um, and the Douglas fir syrup, and then diluted down with water and ice. I think that's, that's a fantastic combination that uh, uh, has a lot of, and sort of, you almost could think of it as sort of the, the, the Riesling of the faux wine world, because it's got that, that really aromatic bouquet, a nice bit of acidity and, and a slight the, the, the slight resinous pine flavor is a little bit unexpected, but huh. quite pleasant. Yeah, I've never done pine and elderflower. That sounds good, though. Um, no. I want you, is, is you there really anything... need the lemon juice, I think, to, to bring the two together. But is there is there anything in? I have to someone do some research and make sure there's nothing in pine tea that pregnant people can't have. Uh, hmm. But that sounds delicious. I'd like to. I'd like to try that. Another good thing for sumac. We used to. Uh, we used to grind uh, sumac finer uh, along with uh, the salt and use it uh, as a French fry spice. It's really good on French fries. Uh, you know, it's, it brings some of that acidity to it, and uh, it's almost like you know, if you're not gonna if you're not gonna douse your French fries in ketchup, sumac's nice. I mean, if you're gonna douse them in ketchup, it's really no point. But um, hey, Dave, it's Jack. Hey, Jack. Hey. So I see here, women who are pregnant or could become pregnant are advised not to drink pine needle tea in general for fear it could cause abortion. Wow. And Jack, welcome. I didn't know you were in the studio. I'm here. Yeah. Hey, what's up? Hey, Jack. Uh, well, you know. There, there, there you have it. But uh, hmm. so good if you don't want to have alcohol. Maybe not good if you're pregnant. Don't know. Or leave the or leave the pine out. 
Yeah, leave the pine out. Leave the pine out. Because I know, I've, I've never done lemon and uh, elderflower, but yuzu and elderflower I know is delicious. Uh, with pear, pear juice with yuzu and elderflower, very good. Uh, carbonate that sucker too. But here's something that you're going to know uh, more about again, Chris. Uh, you got a caller, by the way, oh, Dave. Okay, caller. We'll take the caller and then we'll go back to coffee. Caller, you're on the air. Hey, guys. It's Chris Kohler from North Carolina. How you doing? Good. First, I wanted to thank Chris for uh, Chef Steps. He's always answering my questions on the forum and... It's a great resource that uh, everybody that listens to this, you know, radio and that likes your blog would absolutely love. Cool. Thanks, Chris. And, nice, nice to actually hear your voice. Yeah, uh, it's, it's great, you know, getting to ask you guys a question. I just got a bunch of ramps, and I want to know what to do with them. I've always kind of avoided them because, you know, I feel like they might be overhyped or that they're like, you know, a little too, you know, whatever. But uh, what do I do with these things? Well, so Stas hates – Nastasha hates ramps just because other people like them. Just, just a caveat. Right, Stas? That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's why I've always avoided them. Oh. All right, Chris, give me some ramp – give me some ramp uh, – drop some well, ramp. There, 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 there's obviously the, the pickled ramps, charred ramps are nice. I, I would uh, – you know, one of the things I would do is I, I'd like to make a nice sauce from them. So I would, I would char them slightly, uh, puree them, and turn them into a fluid gel. So do you have any agar or gel and gum? Yep, got agar. Um, would you charm just on the grill, or should I just use a blowtorch? Uh, you could do it with a you could do it with a blowtorch. If you check out the charred rapini video on ChefSteps.com, you'll uh, you'll sort of see a nice technique that that we use. And so I just give them uh, a, a, a light charring, then then puree them. Uh, I would let them down with a little bit of water rather than uh, a stock just because I think the flavor is fantastic. Uh, adjust the seasoning. And then if you wanted sort of a, a, a thicker puree that that, uh, that you could drag or that would stand up and have some body to it, with agar, I'd probably set it with about 1% and then puree it um, and, and, and sieve it. Uh, if you had gel and gum, you might be able to go down to about 0.75% for a, for a fairly thick puree. But what's nice about the fluid gel is it's not going to be gloopy or cloying in the mouth. It's going to be very clean and really let the charged sort of ramp flavor come through. One thing, though, is definitely um, don't add the salt or any acid to the puree until right before serving, or you're going to end up discoloring this sort of vibrant green green appearance cool and one other thing in general when you're using ingredients like that is since since you're gonna ha- since you're gonna charge extra for them and people want to know what they taste like and they're expensive and they only come around once in a while usually you should use them in things that highlight them i mean that's you know just sure. common practice when you say Chris, yeah that I mean, makes sense yeah um, you know it's it's you know the Yes, that's true, and I agree with that. The other thing, though, is people can get a little bit overly precious. And so if you sort of that follow to its logical conclusion, you get this sort of farce of, 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 a, of a cooked ramp on a plate with nothing else right. um, because, because it's so special that we have to highlight it. It's like, uh, you can do a little bit more to it and, and still really uh, show off the ramp. What you might end up doing is composing a couple different textures. So the pickled ramp, the ramp puree, um, you know, some, some, some very thinly sliced ramp, um, all of those could be could be really nice. What, what, do, you, what do you call that? Dish? Ramp, you call that ramp it up? <laughs> I'll leave the puns to you. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, again, we we at Booker and Dax are the world the expert guy. punists. Uh, yeah. All right. Cool. Well, what, what do you like? What do you like for ramps? What do you like uh, uh, pairing ramps with? Well, I don't. Dave? I don't. I've never. Uh, I've, I never used them uh, at the French culinary uh, because I just never did. I would only ever cook them at home, and so then I usually just I just do them as a as a side. I do like a uh, like a quick saute 
and then a little bit of sugar down like I would with uh, asparagus, salt, and like a little bit of correction with acidity at the very end as it comes out and just serve them kind of glazed and wilted like that. But because I'm doing it at home, you know? Well, two, two things just came to my mind, Chris, actually. Somebody on our forum mentioned that if you have a lot of ramp to do about like a 10-pound case, uh, ramp kimchi, and that sounds fantastic. So that would be very cool. That sounds see. really good. The other idea that comes to mind is it's going to definitely shift the flavor a bit, but if you do end up making that ramp puree, Enrich it with a little schmaltz, a little uh, a little roast chicken fat, yeah. um, and and that's just going to make it incredibly uh, delicious. You just wanted to say schmaltz, Chris. I did. <laughs> I, I actually I have I have a, a, a notepad here with words that I want to get into our conversation. It's sort of the subliminal programming going on. Well, schmaltz is a good one. You know, people don't have the schmaltz on the table anymore. That's like so old school. I think Sammy's Romanian is the last restaurant in New York where you can go have, like, uh, the big thing of schmaltz on the table. Well, and it's, it's really easy to do. If you pressure, if you, if you take, like, your roast chicken carcass and then pressure cook the heck out of it, you're going to have all this fat on the top, and most people throw that out, which that's kind of a crime. I mean, you should, you should skim that off and, and save it because roast chicken fat's awesome. Oh, yes. Oh, yes, it is. It's a delicious product. Uh, all right, so I hope that answers the ramp question. Yeah, right? thank you guys. Thanks, uh, Chris. Keep up the great work. All right, thank you. All right, so uh, you know there's a Schmaltz Brewing Company. Ah, uh, that can't that can't be good. I don't want Schmaltz <laughs> in my beer, Jack. There Definitely is. Not. I do not want Schmaltz. I mean, like, I look, I, I will go places other people will not, but Schmaltz in my beer is not one. Although I will taste it. If if someone ever hears this who can get a hand uh, their hand on a can of Schmaltz beer. Send it our way, and we'll definitely I'll – I'll get bread and schmaltz and drink the schmaltz beer with it. Uh, okay. <clears throat> All right. Here we go, Chris. Coffee, right? So remember, for those of you yep. that don't know, uh, I think uh, – because I think people don't really know – and this is actually an interesting question, although we shouldn't spend too much time on it because we have a bunch of actual questions to get through. But yeah, Maybe we can take a quick break too unless you want to squeeze well, this out. Yeah, let's squeeze this out for a second. So like the uh, – in, in the modernist cuisine, there are certain sections that different – Ones of you in the you know in the big one had more of a hand in because it's kind of more of your thing. You had a giant hand uh, in the the coffee section, correct? This is why I'm pestering you with the coffee questions. Yeah, no, I I I I'm I'm a big fan of coffee. I I would like to say that I stood on the shoulder of some giant people like Jim Hoffman, uh, world barista champ, and and run Square Mile Coffee in London, and Tim Wendelbo. Uh, I had some uh, some really wonderful people uh, help out extensively with that chapter, but. Uh, we, it's at least something I'm passionate about. So we tried to make it a great chapter. Right. So now there, there's two questions we have uh, from last week that I didn't answer. One on mocha pots and one on arrow presses. But before I get into it, let me just say that my my uh, you know expertise, if you can call it that, in coffee is almost exclusively related to uh, espresso shots because that's what I drink and that's all I drink. Uh, I drink a lot of it, but that's what I make and that's what I what I think about uh, a lot. Uh, but before we even get into this, I think everyone uh, should probably go check out – if you don't I mean Modernist Cuisine, I, I read it, the section on coffee actually today, uh, but also go to um, – look at VST Mojo to Go and what they have done with uh, like linking refractometers and initial uh, coffee weights to kind of targeting where your brew is and probably read uh, Scott Rayo's book uh, on uh, everything but espresso, if you're interested in kind of the mechanics of non-espresso brewing. Is, would you agree with that fact or no? 
I would actually recommend both of Scott Rayo's books. I think they're two of the best books written on the subject and uh, certainly influenced uh, our thinking on coffee. So, But his everything but a special book, uh, I think, is the standard by which other books will be judged. I, I wish ours was that good. Right. But I mean, so I mean, the, the key is, and we're going to talk here about AeroPress and Mocha Pots. But the the key is to is to understand uh, that each one of these things has uh, a lot of variables involved in it, and each type of coffee maker that people still use on a regular basis can make a delicious cup of coffee. However, they're not interchangeable, and they won't make the same cup of coffee. And so the, the, the question is figuring out how to control the variables accurately to get it consistent and the best of that style of coffee that you can get. Would you agree with that, Chris, or no? Yeah, I, I think that's what's interesting about it is, you know, you have this raw material, but depending on how you extract the the literally hundreds, if not thousands of compounds in it, you get a very different drinking experience. And, and to those who care about coffee, it can be incredibly interesting that, Something as simple as the difference between a pour-over and a French press give you such a very different uh, outcome. Right. Now, on the on the French press variant up to new newer style AeroPress, the first question. Uh, hopefully an, a, an easier question. This is also from a, a person who doubled up on a question. I recently acquired an AeroPress and a burr grinder. Uh, this is why the acquisition of additional materials would lead to a domestic dispute. So what we're told is he cannot purchase a more expensive uh, machine other than the AeroPress and the burr grinder that he has. Uh, and I've been experimenting with different amounts of coffee, different grinds, and different water temperatures. Small changes seem to make a big difference to the taste. I would greatly appreciate your comments on how the various factors affect the result. The AeroPress website suggests that making a very concentrated initial brew and watering it down will get a better result than adding more water. Why is this? Also, why does grind size seem to make such a difference? One post I found online recommends inverting the press and very carefully making sure that the foam on top of the coffee made its way into the final cup. Although you don't like that stuff, right, Chris? That stuff that floats up? You're not a fan, right? I'm not a huge fan of breaking. I like to skim the raft off um, in the case of French press before... uh, before plunging it to prevent it from sort of over-brewing and over-extracting while it sits on the table. Right, right. Well, in fact, uh, the person who wrote the question, Alex, also agrees with that because they found the results of the turning it upside down a bit oily and harsh. But perhaps my palate is immature, says Alex, or perhaps I need better beans. Any advice? I enjoy tinkering with different options but would love to understand the basics of what's going on with different grind sizes, temperatures, and concentrations. Keep up the good work, Alex from Toronto. Well, uh, I mean, very, very simply put, in, uh, in an AeroPress... When you do the AeroPress, I do I do a full stir down, let it sit, and then and then do the press extraction. Is that what you do, or no? I mean, I, that, that really would be that would be what I do because you're putting it through a through a through an extremely fine membrane filter. So, the, the idea of it sort of over extracting once you once you essentially uh, uh, um, strain it, as it were, uh, it, it, it's irrelevant. So yeah, a stir down there for even wetting of the grounds and a, a more in uh, a, a sort of a more uniform extraction is going to help. This is one of these things where you can very easily start chasing your tail, um, and and I'll be the first to say that I've I've used arrow presses. I, I I like them. I think they're interesting. There's a lot of great techniques online, um, but I'm not an expert on AeroPress because I don't make it all that often. Um, you know, a couple of things that I can point out is the water temperature has a huge impact. Generally speaking, the cooler your water, the more acidic you're going to get. The hotter your water, the more you will tend towards the bitter side. Um, something around 98 Celsius. I think the AeroPress folks actually recommend a slightly lower temperature, um, but something in the upper 90s is going to be about right. You'll have to find where that sweet spot is for you with everything else held constant. 
But in general, as you lower the water temperature, you're going to tend to find it more acidic and maybe a little bit under-extracted. And as it's it's hotter water, it's going to get a little more bitter and over-extracted. Right. And the finer the grind, the faster you will extract. And the coarser the grind, the slower you will extract. Finer grinds tend to, you know, favor over-extraction. Coarser grinds favor under-extraction. That interacts with water temperature, as does contact time. So the problem is you kind of have to choose which of those you're going to keep fixed while you adjust the others. Otherwise, you start to get really befuddled and lose track of where, where you are and what you're trying to tweak. And the, in, the, in the AeroPress, the quantity of water you add to the quantity of coffee should not change the extraction appreciably because you're not getting close to any sort of equilibrium. That should just change how strong the coffee is relative to pure water. Would you agree with that or no? Yeah, it's going to change your brew strength, and this is what the guys at Extract Mojo have done some phenomenal work, is most people tend to, tend to you know, it's surprising how tight the range is that people actually consider sort of a well-balanced cup. And, you know, you can use a refractometer to actually quantify this and say that you actually want to get sort of, you know, an, an 18 or so percent uh, extraction for, from the grounds. Um, that would be for espresso. I actually suspect it will be similar for, uh, for, for AeroPress, but I've never really looked. Yeah, I mean, the, the uh, rail so numbers are between around 18 and 22 for non-espresso. Between 18 and 22, uh, yep. you know... And that varies a little bit culturally. Norwegians like it, you know, what I've heard is Norwegians and Scandinavians favor slightly higher. They also like um, to Americans, Americans, I think, are tend to be 18, 19%, although our friend Jeffrey Steingarten told me I'm a fool for liking 18%. Why? What does he like? Uh, higher. Yeah, it sounds like Jeffrey. That sounds like Jeffrey. But, of course, the Elys like it lower. Right? That's why yep. the Ely's use uh, like the actual Ely family. And you should also go look at Espresso, the chemistry, uh, the chemistry of Qualities, a great book on espresso only. I mean it came out a long time ago, so I don't know kind of how up-to-date it is. But they, they favor kind of very low numbers. Um, they use you know, very like longer shots with lower, uh, lower initial doses. But Yeah, they, they, they talk in – I mean if you talk in terms of sort of brew ratio with espresso, like – and that's – what mass of a shot do you get out of from what mass of ground in a particular time frame? And, you know, the, you'll find that the Italians in general sort of like, um, you know, something that's it's, it's, uh, uh, usually they'll use smaller dosing to begin with. And they'll pull a slightly faster shot, and the brew ratio won't be quite the same as what what they'll do, like, you know, closer to two to one brew ratio. So maybe a seven gram dose, get a 14-gram shot out, whereas you have a tendency in, in, in this country, because we drown our beverages in so much milk, to use much higher dosing, maybe 18 or 20 grams, and then like a one and, you know, this will vary depending on style, but, you know, somewhere closer to like a one and a half, maybe even towards the ristretto of a one-to-one brew ratio, and it's going to make a much much stronger coffee, um, maybe even a little bit bitter. You're going to lose some of the acidity, some of the floral note. But then if you drown it in a gallon of milk, it has a chance of sort of standing out. Yeah, but even as the – so, I mean, you know, Ely – Andrea Ely told me once, yeah, when I, I asked him – so and we're talking now like 10 years ago. So, you know, <clears throat> kind of in the early period of the huge expansion in the, in the coffee scene out where you are in Seattle. I mm-hmm. guess you weren't there at that time, but – you are from that area, whatever. So, yeah. uh, and you know, he. I said, "What do you think about what these guys are doing on the west coast of New York of uh, the, of the U.S., where they're using much higher dose rates than you are and pulling shorter shots?" And as you say, he's you know, he's like the florals are going to be reduced. I happen to think that a circa 
2003, you know, like kind of pan West Coast, so take Vivace as like kind of the one that we all kind of heard about over here, right? That mm-hmm. kind of a shot. I loved that that kind of a shot, like 2002, 2000, like that kind of a shot I thought was amazing. Mm-hmm. The last time I was out there a couple of years ago, like these kind of like skim coat shots where they're like hyper dosing it and pulling out like way less than an ounce. I don't know mm-hmm. about that style. What do you think? I'm, I'm not actually a fan of that style. I, uh, I I probably prefer something closer to 18 gram dose pulled in. Depends on the coffee, but around 27 or so, you know, 20, 24 to 27 seconds. And I generally like to get like uh, more towards like a 1.6, 1.7 brew ratio. Right. It's not it's not an Italian style, but it's not this really overdosed. Um, uh, you know, sort of hyper ristretto shot that, uh, that that's become fairly fashionable. Is there any snapback on the West Coast back towards like slightly more normal shot volumes or no? Yeah, uh, I, I would say actually there's an interesting trend going on at, at, at places um, like Milstead Coffee. There's a, a great uh, an, an up-and-coming uh, uh, young barista named Andrew Milstead who runs this place in Fremont, and he's basically going back towards smaller, uh, smaller. you know, if you order a, a, a cappuccino, you're going to get a five-ounce cup there. And so when you start reducing the amount of milk you're serving, it allows you to sort of start bringing these shot uh, doses down and the brewing ratios to you know maybe more normal levels or levels that to really sort of maximize bringing out the florals and and and, and the various aroma uh, aroma notes you get in the coffee and away from this shot that's really just designed to stand out in 24 ounces of hot milk. Yeah, David, got to squeeze a break in here. Ah, uh, we have to have yeah, a break. We, we have to. Yes. All right, right, right. Commercial break. We'll be right back with Chris Young. This is Chris Young, co-author of Modernist Cuisine. Together with photographer Ryan Matthew Smith and chef Grant Crilly, we've created something exciting and new at ChefSteps.com. Each day in our kitchen at Seattle's Pike Place Market, we're working on new recipes, as well as updating classic ones that we love. And we're always looking for new techniques that make the impossible possible. At ChefSteps.com, we publish it all online with detailed step-by-step demonstrations, as well as explanations of the science that answers the why behind the how in the kitchen. And through our forum, you can engage with our team, as well as a friendly community of curious cooks from around the world. If you're interested in becoming a better cook, if you want more from the creative team behind Modernist Cuisine, and if, like us, you're a fan of Dave Arnold and cooking issues, then we think there's a lot you'll like. And the best part? ChefSteps.com is entirely free to learn. How's that for an ad? There you go. All right, Chris, you're still with us, right? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, cool. So uh, another question also from an Alex, different one. Uh, Alex uh, Gorodetsky writes in about mocha pots, which actually, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and say this. I don't drink mocha pot coffee, but the real problem with mocha pots is that people have uh, linked the word espresso to the mocha pot, and they're just entirely different types of coffee. Right, I mean, they're just not the same thing, right? And I've never taken the time to get a good mocha cup, but apparently, people who like it like it. Yeah, so I, I'm I'm gonna say I've been given like three mocha pots in my lifetime as gifts. Um, 
and it appears to be sort of this cult that people who have mocha pots, it's like Tupperware or something. It's like you, they give you a mocha pot and it's like, join us. And I've never had a good cup of coffee out of a mocha pot. It might be possible, but I've never had it. And so they've never really captivated my interest. And, and then there's just people who are, who love mocha pots. They sort of make me feel like I'm joining a cult, so I've sort of shunned them. Right. Well, hell, well, th- I think the thing is, is that you know, there's a lot to control. Wait, wait. Well, let's. I'll go with the question here. Okay. So we've been using the stovetop Italian mocha coffee maker for many years, and we love it for a variety of reasons. So maybe Alex is also a member of the cult. I don't know. Had some questions to see if we can make the mocha coffee better. First, grind. We have been grinding between espresso, espresso, and Turkish. That is too fine. That is too fine for a mocha pot. All the indications that uh, I have are that you want to go slightly coarser uh, than uh, slightly coarser than espresso. Um, water. We use tap water. Whether or not tap water is good depends on which tap you have. Uh, you know, like kind of. You know, New York City water is a little bit too uh, soft. I think most people would say, but uh, I don't know how Se- Seattle water must be good. That must be one of the reasons why the coffee stuff took off over there, right? Everybody's got reverse osmosis filters on their line in Seattle. Oh, really? And then do they yeah. read? They... The water is perfectly good here, but um, you know, it, it seems that what I've the numbers I've heard thrown around is something like 150 uh, ppm of, 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 of some of your your hard minerals. Basically, if you were to go get like Volvic water or or Dasani or some some sort of name brand, pretty middle of the road water. That's about perfect for coffee, and people will go into fairly great effort of making sure their tap water is about that. Right. And then uh, Alex asked, would it be better with hot tap, uh, tap water? Any other tips would be useful as well. Now, now neither Chris nor I are uh, mocha heads, as we've said. However, Stumptown Coffee has a good little thing. If you go on their website on using the mocha pot best, they say you want to preheat the water before you put it into the mocha pot. This makes sense because it means it's less time on the stove and less time to dry heat your coffee grounds, which is not a good thing. Uh, they also say that the, one of the most important things when you're doing mocha pot work is to keep the lid of it open so that you can look down on it so that as soon as it starts blonding out on the extraction, you can pull it off before you over-extract out of it. And then the other thing that they say is to wrap a wet towel to stop the extraction at that point almost instantly. I would say easier would be just to have like a pan of cold water next to it that you could just put the whole bottom of the... Just quench uh, it. Yeah, just quench it. And that's something I hadn't thought of, and that's probably a good good technique. Um, so I think if you add those, that's probably going to boost your uh, stuff. Go to the top. I would use a coarser grind uh and i think like those i mean I'm, I'm almost you know intrigued now to go out and uh go out and try it uh you know one of the things that's false about a pe- everyone who's against it says well you're boiling the water therefore the water is too hot therefore it can't possibly make good coffee but the fact of the matter is is that from the one or two people i've seen who've done kind of initial measurements of the temperature it's actually by the time it's getting through your coffee grounds no longer boiling and not that far above what it would be in a good espresso machine so you know this is all stuff that can be tweaked out yeah my guess is you know i I, i've sort of taken this weird attitude towards mocha pots i'm sure it's possible to make a, a pretty good cup and i'm sort of spoiled that I have a nice espresso machine at my disposal. I have all these other things, so I've never really looked at it. But I think you're right. It, you're, I, I can't see why you'd want it finer I, because I think you're having a longer extraction period. You'd actually rather have a slightly coarser grind, which is going to give you a slightly bigger margin for air of under versus over extracting. And, that, and with something like a mocha pot where you have to quench it to try to stop the extraction, having anything that, uh, that gives you a little more wiggle room is going to be worthwhile. I, I agree. Hey, Dave, quick tweet. 
Yep, what do just, we got? Just uh, FYI, schmaltz beer doesn't actually have schmaltz in it. They're just using it, you know, using the term. They uh, well, do blood sen- Jewish beers like Hebrew and things of that nature. All I'm saying is send send it our way. That's all I'm saying. You just want beer. Yeah, I just okay. want beer. Cool. Yeah, I'll drink it with uh, I'll drink it with uh, Jimmy uh, Carbone. We'll, we'll have some beer together. Okay. All right. So uh, Brian in San Francisco, this is a good one, uh, Chris. Uh, I've wasted many cups of olive uh, oil, grapeseed oil, and sunflower oil trying to make mayonnaise from scratch. I followed the recipe from Serious Eats Food Lab with the immersion blender, uh, and it comes out liquidy. I've also followed McGee's advice from Keys to Good Cooking about using another yolk to save it, but I couldn't. I've also tried the old-fashioned way with a whisk. Please give me a foolproof recipe for mayo. Also, what about adding flavors, garlic, mustard, and making holidays, uh, bordelaise, and other A's-style sauces? Finally, how long will it keep? In the fridge? The Japanese don't refrigerate theirs. What's up with that? Thanks, Brian, San Francisco. Okay. First of all, uh, mayonnaise is unsafe when it's made, uh, unless you pasteurize the eggs. However, the longer it sits, assuming you've used the correct acid ratios in the manufacture of it, the safer it gets. Uh, so that's why in New Orleans, people don't die from eating the mayonnaise that's been sitting out all day. Uh, but initially made mayonnaise is not safe, and you can always, as Modernist Cuisine will tell you, or as Chris will tell you, or as I will tell you, it's very simple uh, to pasteurize the egg yolks before you use them, and they still make a good mayonnaise, Correct. Yep, they make great mayonnaise. Okay, now this technique on uh, on what's it called on uh, on um, that Kenji uh, Alt did on uh, on the blog there on the Food Network, uh, not Food Network. What's it called? Food Lab is really cool. What he does, Chris, and I don't know if you've seen the video. What he's I done, haven't. Yeah. So what he does is he takes uh, an immersion blender cup, puts an, an a, a single egg yolk in it. Uh, a tablespoon of water, which is a mistake because water doesn't add flavor. I would add a flavorful liquid, but, you know, whatever. I think it was just because that's what he did. Whatever. I'm yeah. not going to get into it. Little, little vinegar would be nice in there. Maybe some mustard. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he adds, also adds mustard, but, like, just straight water, like, came out with, like, a flavorless – because I just did it today, flavorless mayonnaise. And then he puts it into a, 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 the actual cup that comes with the immersion blender, and that turns out to be the key. So what happens is you put the immersion blender in the bottom, you hit it, and uh, because the egg yolk is sitting at the bottom underneath the blades, you actually are slowly adding the oil to it. It makes us an emulsion before the bulk of the oil phase starts getting mixed into it. And you can make a very stiff, banged out, awesome mayonnaise in like in nothing flat. It's actually amazing. It's really kind of well, amazing. So like that's the way I'm when I was garbage chef at the Fat Duck. That's like the way I made our mayonnaise twice a day for for service so um i just i i was unaware this was even a technique yeah yeah well but here's the thing it's easy to mess up because uh so the results are getting too liquidy when brian first said his results were too liquidy my initial assumption was you didn't use enough oil right because yeah. we, we all know that like you actually it's the oil get... that thickens it as you as you as you bulk it up Bingo. But I did as – so then I, as an alternate test, I also did it by adding – you know, the I added the ingredients in all different orders. Uh, I added you know, very, very high proof, uh, you know, 10% uh, Scandinavian vinegar to see whether – or no, Polish vinegar to see whether or not over-acidating the yolk could mess it, and it couldn't. It was all perfect. But then I made the recipe in a quart container instead of in the actual immersion blender cup, and it did not work. Because it created too much mixing of the uh, yolk and the oil before a stable emulsion was formed. So the key to that technique is to use the actual cup that the immersion blender came with. Or if you've lost that, use a mixing tin, for, like, a, like a tall uh, cocktail mixing tin because I tested yeah, it in that you, as well. You just, you just want a cup where down at the bottom of it, it's not the diameter isn't much bigger than the diameter of the end of the stick, uh, the stick blender. And... 
you know, you can start with all the oil, or if you're if you haven't practiced this, you can put a little bit of oil in it, almost sort of chop it up to get that initial emulsion, and then get the rest of the oil in and just start blending from the bottom, slowly pulling up. And uh, uh, you know, I've I've always found that's a very easy way to get a, a thick thing. So if he's having trouble, my guess too big of a container. Yeah, because I it was in I tried it four times in a quart container. It's not possible to do it in something that's too wide at the bottom. Hmm. Anyway, okay, so uh, I am being told uh, that uh, we are out of time. So I have a question about souffle with acid. Do you have anything for stabilizing a high-acid souffle other than making sure that uh, the base isn't too hot when you put the acid ingredient in before you fold the egg whites, Chris? Um, not off the top of my head. You know, the, the, my general reaction when people want to talk about stabilizing the souffle uh, they, they generally mean they don't want it to collapse. And the problem is if you make a souffle so stable that it doesn't collapse, it's a cake, right. not a souffle anymore. Um, but you're, you're talking about being able to add a, a high acid into, into the egg base before baking? Yeah. I mean, I mean well, I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about it next week. Mark Jensen also wrote in with a, a gr- great use of his uh, leftover 64-degree eggs. He makes a hollandaise without having to pre-cook in modernist uh, cuisine style. So I'll talk about that. It's yep. a good use. Uh, and then we had someone who was having problems with their creme anglaise, Tom Fisher. We'll get to you next uh, week. So I'm sorry we didn't get to finish clear all the questions, but that's just we had so many good questions and good callers in. And you got to talk to us about the cereal puffer next week too. Oh yeah, we have a new puffing gun, Chris. Next time you're in the that. city for the summertime, I, come I, in. I, I saw the photo. I, I'm I'm extremely envious. So uh, uh, maybe a trip to New York to, to come out and play with your toys. Well, you know, you guys, you know, Chef Steps is willing to like Chef Steps comes out here. You guys can make your own proprietary. Terry puffed snack mix in our puffer, you know, in the museum's puffer would be awesome. Also, we shipped a we shipped a beta test unit of the uh, Searsol out to you guys. Do you guys get it yet? Uh, I will check if it came. I haven't seen it yet, but uh, I, I'm 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 interested. I was very interested to see the results you had on blowtorching, and that, that uh, you know you, you might be proving us wrong that we've got to reduce some revisions to MC. All right. Well, see see what you think about it, and let me just say this. For those of you that still cook foie gras out there, the sears all is ridiculous on the foie gras. And Chris, thanks for coming and uh, speaking with us. Cooking Issues! Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>